Perform this on demand. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode, another week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for coming back if you've listened before. And if you're new, I hope you find a voice of reason. I hope you find an American Muslim voice that'll make you scratch your head and say, not only where have these voices been, but maybe I've been looking at the problem that plagues Muslim-majority countries, communities, and the denial that seems to pervade the Muslim communities or the Muslims you talk to. Maybe I've found that voice that can be amplified. So listen in, join me. For the next few segments, we'll be talking about what's newest, what is fresh this week that we need to confront those clinics of reform that exist here in the West and abroad about reform, where we need to begin. I've talked to you in the past. There's a few things. One is you you can't help but talk about the elephant in the room, which is the election. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And especially, you know, I don't like to get into partisan politics. I think this is nonpartisan, but, you know, there's one glaring issue that we need to talk about. Second, I want to talk to you about the anti-blasphemy case in Pakistan of Asiya Bibi, an unbelievably tragic case of, and in some ways, it's having a better ending. She was released, and we'll talk about what's happening in Pakistan with that. And last, the new alliance in the Middle East that seems to be arising. It's been bubbling. You haven't heard about it from the Western media, but Saudi Arabia, the UAE, sort of the anti-Islamists. That's not new, but what's new is they're now working with Assad, building a, a new regional alliance, a new regional alliance against the Muslim Brotherhood. How does that make sense? We'll talk about that. So first, the elections. You know, I'll let the pundits, the political experts, scratch their head and give you better answers about what actually happened politically, uh, who should take credit, is this a mandate or not, uh, for or against Trump, depends on which polls you look at, depends on which House of Congress you look at. I'm not going to get into that here. This is a this is a program in which we dedicate the little bit of time I have with you to Muslim reform, to anti-Islamist reform. So what's relevant? Well, what's relevant is legacy media this week seems to be focusing on three major candidates. In fact, they had eight pictures of new women in the Congress that seemed to have missed the conservative new women heroines that are, are part of the change, not only post-Me Too, but part of actual coming to terms with actual equality. Now, all we heard about was Russia Tlaib, was uh, Rashida Tlaib, the Palestinian-American that ran for, oh, I believe it was Conyers' old seat, so that's a guaranteed no-brainer. And as you may recall, I mentioned it in 
months, months ago that, uh, you know, we had decades, I think half a century of John Conyers, who basically might as well have been a Hamas operative voting uh, for the Islamists' uh, positions, but nobody ever noticed because uh, he did so masquerading as simply a uh, a liberal African-American congressman from Detroit, from the Detroit suburbs. But, uh, you know, the reality is, is that when it came to issues that mattered in national security about counter-Arabism, counter-Islamism, he always voted on the wrong side. Well, he retires, his seat's open, and the Democratic nod goes to Rashida Tlaib, Palestinian-American. Once she won the primary, we knew she was going to win the general election, and sure enough, this week she did. CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, founded by many Hamas supporters, Hamas operatives, uh, clearly never made a statement against Hamas, clearly has been an apologist for Palestinian terrorism, for Islamist brotherhood-based terrorism out of the Palestinian movements, was first to celebrate her win, and uh, anyone who questioned it must be anti-Muslim, must be an Islamophobe. Go over to Minnesota, same thing. You have Ilhan Omar ran for the seat vacated by probably not only the first Muslim in Congress, but the biggest apologist for American Islamism, a man who's raised, participated in somewhere over 35 or so fundraisers for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, for the Islamic Society of North America, a man who has given many floor arguments in Congress in support of continued arms, support of Saudi Arabia, of uh, uh, also went to do his hajj on the dime of the Muslim American Society, on and on. His uh, Look at the investigative project, look at Daniel Pipe's website, uh, Middle East Forum, and so many others that have well chronicled the dangers and the associations and affiliations of Keith Ellison. In fact, I debated him back in 2009 in a briefing that I was providing to Congress, and thanks to Congressman Trent Franks and Frank Wolf and others, he was uh, brought to have a conversation with me. And that's archived online. You can see it at uh, AIFDTV, AIFDTV at YouTube. Just take a look at that debate. You'll see he blamed me for hate crimes against Muslims. He denied the existence of political Islam or Islamism and basically called me a self-hating Muslim. And then when confronted on a documentary two years later in 2011 by Dan Rather, asked him if I was an Uncle Tom. He said he denied ever calling me an Uncle Tom, even though the video said he did. And yet, he said... I wasn't an Uncle Tom, but yet I was no different than the blacks who worked with the slave owners, which (laughs) is an Uncle Tom by definition. So Ilhan Omar runs for that position. She has series of hateful speeches and tweets, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, that uh, basically demonize the democracy of Israel that demonize the Jewish community that promote Palestinian radical movements that promote Islamism that are silent about the threat of Islamists. Nobody paid attention to that. 
There's even questions about whether in order to gain immigration, she's a Somali immigrant. Uh, in order to gain immigration, she may have married her brother for a short period of time, which should have been exposed in the campaign and was written about by Alpha News and others and yet was ignored repeatedly. Keith Ellison himself vacated the seat in order to run for attorney general. And sure enough, he wins with the Democratic Party support in Minnesota. And again, no comments were made about his domestic violence issues. Despite the Democrats' focus on the Me Too issue, it seemed like it didn't include Keith Ellison's own history. And in fact, they didn't believe Miss Monahan's reports and her evidence and, and the old hashtag that says that they demand that victims be believed. I guess that's except when it comes to Keith Ellison. And forget the fact of his and Ilhan Omar's closeness to Louis Farrakhan, the radical national nation of Islam movement. And last but not least, Ocasio, um, Ocasio-Cortez, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the socialist, the the buffoon who, who if you watch any of her interviews, uh, now being lauded as the charismatic 20-something youngest member of Congress ever, uh, whatever other adjectives of fawning are being put upon her, uh, clearly when it comes to domestic and global politics is a buffoon. She really doesn't understand the ideas, uh, says things that uh, defy any read of eighth grader, uh, eighth grade history, and yet she's being lauded as a new leading voice of the Democratic Party. She fits every identity movement, and yet her politics are profoundly even to the left of Bernie Sanders. So, ladies and gentlemen, this new red-green caucus is what it is, the red-green caucus. As I've talked to you before, globally there's an axis that not only is a threat of the Islamists, the green part of that axis, uh, as we see with Turkey, Qatar, Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamists of Iran, of the Khomeinists, but they work closely with socialist, leftist, communist movements. So you'll see socialist parties in the West and throughout the Middle East and elsewhere working closely with the Islamists. Why? Collectivists like to work together until it comes to power sharing, then they don't. But to get to power, they will work closely together. The socialists in Europe worked very closely with Islamists. And then you'll even see websites like the Socialist Workers Party that had had a website that said 40 reasons we don't want to work with Tarek Ramadan. Tarek Ramadan now in jail for, for rape uh, and is being tried for that, but yet was the iconic leader of the Muslim Brotherhood-type Islamist movements in Europe. And who also, by the way, happened to be the grandson of Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. He also has a long pedigree of ideas that are very problematic when it comes to Western ideas of freedom. But this red-green axis is real, so I'm sorry. If the media is to be honest, they committed malpractice when it came to the opinion, to the ideas of these three candidates, Rashida Tlaib in Dearborn and Detroit area, Ilhan Omar in Minnesota, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, Cortez did get a lot of press coverage, but her affiliation with Linda Sarsour, uh, Russia Tlaib's affiliation with Islamist organizations, Ilhan Omar's affiliation with Keith Ellison, Nation of Islam, radical Islamist organizations, etc. All of that was ignored since they fit the identity 
checkbox. So I find that offensive as an American Muslim. There is such a bigotry of low expectations that the ideologies of these members don't matter. Now they're going to be representing us. The Muslim candidate that ran in the Republican Party, endorsed by not only his GOP party in San Diego, uh, in the district that he ran, the 52nd district in California, his name is Omar Kudrat, a former uh, Homeland Security um, agent and, and uh, served his country in working in this issue in counterterrorism and showed his community that he has the political wherewithal and the knowledge to advance conservative ideas. He was not rejected by the Republican Party. He won the primary in a broad in a broad race. And yet how much media attention did he get? Nobody even covered him on any major news of the fact that he lost to a candidate who refused to debate him. The Democratic candidate, Scott uh, something, I don't remember well, I don't remember his last name, but he, he refused to even stand in a debate because he knew once, once it was no longer simply voting for party but voting for individuals, he would have lost. So this is where we are. When people say, where are the voices of moderate Muslims? We are in the dustbin of the circular file of legacy media that wants to advance this red-green axis. So stand by, ladies and gentlemen. It'll be under some other Orwellian name, but it's basically going to be the new red-green caucus, the red-green axis caucus of Congress that will drive media attention to Muslims as the identity poster children, the political prop of the left. It's offensive. While the Omar Qadrats and other conservative Muslims that, and it's not just about conservatives, the moderate, the, the pro-American, the anti-Islamist Muslims that are the ones that would really represent Western ideals, that would reject and be part of Reformation, that would reject Islamism, you don't hear from them. And when you do, it's typically on Fox, other conservative outlets that are really focused on patriotism, national security, border security, counterterrorism. Small government, small business, free markets, Second Amendment, all these principles that are conservative principles, the Muslims that run on those, I think, would bring a new, fresh diversity to the identity politic, but we don't hear from them. So reform becomes very difficult when we are, as individuals, used as simply a prop. Good luck, Omar Kodrat, in the future. I think he'll do well, regardless of uh, next cycle, what may happen. And to the Rashida Tlaibs and Ilham Omars and the Ocasio-Cortezes, stand by. Uh, We will continue to critique your ideas and expose your affiliations and demonstrate your ideological incompatibility with the American Constitution. This is Zudi Jasser. We'll be right back on Reform This. Dr. Zudi Jasser, welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Always an honor to be with you. And uh, if you if you like this podcast, if you enjoy hearing a different voice, hearing the issues I talk about that you're probably not going to hear about on lamestream media, share. Send this to your friends. Please 
go to SoundCloud, go to iTunes, go to Blaze Radio, check out and save and share. Subscribe, please, to Blaze other Blaze Radio podcasts, including my own. Now, I wanted to talk to you about Asiya Bibi. Now, before we get to the fact that she was finally let out of captivity, she was uh, in prison, I want to let you know about her story. 47-year-old mother of four, 2009, working with other farm laborers who were Muslim. She's Christian, came to her belief strongly, believes in it. And yet, by all accounts, even the Supreme Court, as this you know, trickled through the Pakistani court system, even the judges agreed that there was no evidence that she had ridiculed Islam. Even the judges agreed that she did nothing. And every time they came to his decision, it was being delayed. Even one judge recused himself. Why? Because the Pakistani judges up to the Supreme Court are deathly afraid of making certain pronouncements that run against the radical Islamists because it is mob rule. It is fear by intimidation. It's because 65 people have died that were accused of blasphemy that regardless of what the court system in Pakistan said, ultimately were killed in the streets, beheaded, slaughtered by the mobs in Pakistan. Judges were attacked. Many were also injured as a result, if not killed, as a result of these mobs. So many judges refused to weigh in. Asiya Bibi is a hero. She was finally released. She was in prison for nine years. What was the story initially? She's working with Muslim farm workers. She was asked to go get them water. I don't know why. She was there her equal, supposedly. Obviously not. She brought it back. They said she sipped from the water. So as a result, they told her we cannot drink water from a Christian who drank it. So they said in order to make this halal, you must convert to Islam. She refused and said that that was ridiculous. And then a few hours later, she had mobs showing up at her house, declaring that she had criticized Islam because she refused to convert. What is the evidence that she criticized the Prophet Muhammad or blasphemed against Islam? Beyond that story that I just told you, there is none. Despite that, she was put in jail, not only just a regular prison, solitary confinement. They would say they did that solitary confinement because it protected her from being killed by others. Protected her from being killed by others. Her four children didn't see her now for nine years. Her case kept coming before the court. No evidence was seen. She was finally let out. And this week we've seen riots. We've seen a party that is called Tahrik Labak, an anti-blasphemy party with club-wielding radicals marching through the streets demanding that she be killed, demonstrating that they're going to paralyze the country because she was just released this week and that they're going to kill the judges. And then you had Islamist parties respond and say, that that is not Islam. We go by the rule of law, even if we disagree with the court, etc., etc. So now you have the Islamist parties that 
Imran Khan, the cricket player, playboy, come normalized politician in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, who it seems behind the scenes obviously begged fealty to some of the Islamist movements there, call for moderation, call for a lack of chaos and anarchy. And yet, what has the response been? The response has been continued violence, continued riots. The response has been for Asiya Bibi to leave quietly, to be protected. And actually, she even hinted that she wanted to remain in confinement because she wasn't sure she'd be safe. So first, number one, the West needs to guarantee her family and her protection and get her out of Pakistan. We're talking about caravans while somebody who really deserves protection because of American values of religious freedom who can really help change the world no different than Malala did. No different than Malala has. Malala did it. She's as a Muslim who went to want to get an education as a teenager and was shot as she tried to go to school. So many of these people who are one case out of hundreds and thousands of retribution cases in which scores are settled by saying somebody blasphemed and it ends up being a tribal issue and the government then becomes the tool, an impugned tool of enforcing anti-blasphemy laws. So we need to start weighing in on this. At the end of the day, the pathology is a cancer, a cultural cancer of theocracy. Pakistan is supposedly a, a, a Islamic Republic, but supposedly secular. And yet the blasphemy law, the apostasy laws, the hadood punishments, all might as well be a theocracy. So these things aren't going to change by the Supreme Court simply making one stand. They need to start having the infusion of ideas that are Islamic, that counter, that advance liberty and counter Islamism. This is not going to happen overnight. This needs to happen with the empowerment of the government, with the empowerment of people, with the empowerment of judges and lawyers and others and imams and clerics. But you're not seeing any of that. And in the West, what we're paying attention to? Jim Acosta and the caravan. We're paying attention to Ocasio-Cortez and Thrusha Tlaib and so many others. It's embarrassing. These need to be stories. Khashoggi got day after day after day Yes, it was an inappropriate assassination. It shouldn't have been done, and the Saudis should be exposed, and that will happen for the mafia that they are. But, but, where's the story of Asiya Bibi? It doesn't fit the left's narrative. They're not working at the Washington Post as a columnist. She was in prison for almost a decade. And the Islamic Republic of theocracy weighs too heavily upon the lobby, the OIC. Where are the other Islamic countries if they supposedly share our values? They should be welcoming her for protection and her family. No, that's not happening. So when it comes to reform, I'll remind you, there was a man by the name of Salman Taseem, a provincial governor of the Punjab, who publicly criticized the harsh treatment that Bibi was receiving and his own bodyguard, Qadri shot him dead. A 26-year-old radical Islamist was his bodyguard, and the governor of Punjab was shot dead. And he was trying to stop this. This is a major, major problem, ladies and gentlemen. And for every one ASEA that you hear about, there are hundreds and thousands 
in solitary confinement that you don't. It's an cancerous ideology of Islamism, of theocracy that needs to start to go through reformation. We need to start defending the rights of apostates, the rights of atheists, the rights of, of, of people of all stripes and faith in these countries, not just the United States, in these countries. And oh, by the way, it's coming here. It's coming to the West. When the European Human Relations Council, as I discussed with you on this podcast a few weeks ago, when they defend the rights of Muslims to prevent criticism of the Prophet Muhammad, which is absolutely absurd, absolutely absurd. And now they're threatened by mobs that that would have rallied against them. That is mob mentality. That is Islamism in Germany and Sweden and elsewhere. So it's coming here. Beware, ladies and gentlemen. And we need to have a plan, a strategy, not just to close the borders, but how do you transform Muslims into people who are continue to be pious, but yet reject the violence, intimidation, and oppressive ideas of Islamism? You need to confront them. You need to expose them. You need to have debates and platforms. It can only happen here in the West, and especially in America. Europe has already severely severe problems in the west i think based on religious liberty we can begin to engage these issues bring her here begin to engage muslim counter-islamists pakistani arabic people in the ethnic communities to engage their position on these things and speak out openly against what their government is doing over there this is zuri jasser on reform this we'll be right back Dr. Zudi Jasser, welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This. Please don't forget to share, subscribe, spread the word about this program, about this podcast. If you like it, come back every Saturday, released on Blaze Radio. You can find me on SoundCloud, iTunes, and in the podcast arena. It's always great to be with you. Last thing I wanted to talk to you about today was what's happening in the Middle East. You know... Obviously, the Arab Awakening, and I've talked about this many times, was certainly not a spring. It was the beginning, though, of necessary change. And as I've said, I think the best analogy is like treating cancer. Often, when you treat cancer, you take patients to surgery, you give them chemotherapy, you give them radiation. They take chances up front because they don't know if they're going to get better, get sicker, not make it, or ultimately cure the disease. But most people when given a choice, will try to cure the disease. Now, you can look at the Middle East as a cancer on the world, and it's better to leave that cancer contained and control the dictators in their populations. But if you believe in humanity, and you believe that those citizens don't deserve the dictators they have, you want to at least give them the ability to choose for themselves. And it's not ours to give. They're trying to get it on their own. And ultimately, I think our policy should be to prevent foreign intervention in the Middle East, to prevent meddling from Russia, from China, from Iran, from wherever it might be, that prevents self-determination of these, of these groups, of these citizenries. But unfortunately, the Islamists are well organized, and they hijacked many of these revolutions. We all know what happened. Tunisia, I think, remains as one of the silver linings. It's still... It ousted the Islamists without need for a coup after the 
they took over. And we've talked about that before on this program. But I think my point in this segment is what's happening today while we're focused on domestic elections and other things. I think most people would agree that Assad is one of the most heinous tyrants of the last 50 to 70 years since World War II's fascists that the West defeated. And yet, he's declaring, he's all but declared victory over the, not only ISIS, but over the revolution. And he's called the revolution basically ISIS. And that just belies reality. There's a Twitter handle I'd like you guys to follow. It's called Syrian Revolution Rewind. You might not agree with everything on it. It's just, it's simply pictures and remembrance of demonstrations from March 2011, April 2011. There was one picture this week that showed Druze, Christians, Alawites, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, agnostics marching together on the streets of Dara, on the streets of Homs, on the streets of Hama and Damascus against the Assad regime. That happened in 2011 slowly went away in 2012 and went into oblivion in 2013 when ISIS started, when Jabhat al-Nusra and the hundreds of Islamist groups started. Fast forward 2018, Assad's all but declared victory against the Islamists. And now Saudi Arabia's declared war on the Muslim Brotherhood, which in many ways is probably, as I've said here before, is good. I don't like their methods. I think it's mafioso. It's corrupt. It's evil, just as we see them doing in Yemen. But at the end of the day, the Muslim Brotherhood are not Democrats. They're not liberals trying to be free. They're not about democracy. Democracy to them, as Erdogan says, is a train. You use it so you get where you want to go and then you come off. So that's why I testified to Congress, and you can find my testimony at the House Subcommittee on Oversight website in which I talk about why the Muslim Brotherhood, most of its state chapters and state actors from Syria to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and elsewhere should be declared a foreign terrorist organization. Egypt, its mothership, etc. But having said that, not groups that you may think are Muslim Brotherhood but aren't labeled as such. Not groups that are legacy groups, Islamist ideological groups. Those have to be defeated with the sunlight, the antiseptic of sunlight. Now the Saudis are going to continue to employ the methods that they've used to oppress and repress their own people. And that just doesn't work. The best testimony to that is the Turks. The AKP was repressed in many ways for, for decades and now that they've got control, they're never going to let it go. They've become underground cancers that spread and were never able to really be defeated in the light of day until Erdogan took over around 2002 or so. So if you really want to defeat these ideas, you have to debate them. You have to engage them. The Saudis will never do that. They're Wahhabi corporate fundamentalist mentality is trying to stamp out the Brotherhood, and I don't think you can defeat ideas that need deep, deep reformation against some of the theological, theopolitical empowerment of Sharia supremacism, Sharia law, 
of the 11th and 12th century has never evolved into what the West did in its own 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Secular liberal democracy has yet to found a home in the Islamic doctrine, and that needs reform. What's happening now in the Middle East is that the Saudis, our allies for many reasons, are now opening up, as the UAE is, one of, I thought one of the more moderate countries. Yes, they're anti-Islamist, they're anti-brotherhood, and have been for quite a while. Has now opened channels looking at opening their embassy in Damascus. They're now beginning to renormalize the Assad regime. So ladies and gentlemen, whoever thought that the Assad regime, the Assad family would be on trial, as we saw with Milosevic, and would be standing for the crimes against humanity that their entire family and the Ba'athists run by the Assad family have done in Syria, it looks like it's going to be far from ever happening. They're soon probably going to be normalized back into the Arab constellation of states. Now, what's weird, and I'm still scratching my head trying to figure this out, is maybe they're just doing it superficially to join in preventing the outflux of ISIS back into Saudi Arabia, whatever it might be. But how are they going to thread the needle of the deep relationship of Assad, the ownership of the state in which it's become a client state of Iran? Because clearly the UAE, Egypt... Saudi Arabia that claims to be now beginning this detente, this entente, whatever it might be with Syria, is doing so to buttress themselves and create a bulwark against the Shia Crescent, which is Iran and Iraq, especially Iran. Is Assad really going to flip and go back as an Arab tyrant? With the Arab League? Or is it still the GCC? So is the GCC trying to broaden out? The GCC is the Gulf country states, the Petro-Islamic states versus Jordan, Egypt, and the non-Gulf states. Syria was part of those non-Gulf Arab states. But Syria, just like Qatar, went all in with Iran. So... Are we seeing, according to the Assad apologists now, if you look at, in the last minute here I want to talk to you, if you look at the Assad apologists in the West, they're saying now the whole Middle East Sunni Shia thing is gone. It's no longer about that. It's about conservatives versus fundamentalists or Islamists. That's one axis to look at it. But if you believe for a minute that the conservatives are not whatever they want to call conservatives, like one person that's been tweeting this is Joshua Landis. Joshua Landis is, is, is as tight as they come. He's from the University of Oklahoma. He's about as tight as they come to being an Assad operative here in the West. So I would take what he's saying as being the sort of talking point for the Assad regime and apologists in the West. Now many may say, well, who cares? You're dancing on the head of a pin. Let's work on the ones that at least won't kill Americans. 
The only reason there haven't been more Iranian Hezbollah killing Americans is because of the sanctions we've had against the death to America crowd over the last 30 to 40 years. It's not because they wouldn't do it had they not been able to radicalize and spread their literature like the Saudis and Muslim Brotherhood and the Sunni Islamists have had petro-Islamic billions, hundred billions if not more, to spread for decades. I don't know what this realignment is, but we need to pay attention. The realignment of Assad back with Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Egypt. Now some may say, well, maybe it's better to realign that way and get him away from the orbit of Russia. Maybe that's what that's all about. You know, it's sort of like looking at the realignment in the godfather of the uh, mafia families around the table. Who's going to run it and who sits at the table? Assad was no longer at the table. They're bringing him back into the Arab mafia families, renormalizing him as a respectable mafioso. You can look short term, but long term, if you want no longer that your children and grandchildren be threatened by Islamist militancy, the greatest cauldron ever brewed for producing radical Islam was Assad, Syria. My family came from that, and I can tell you that that cauldron of repression, oppression, torture, socialism, Arab fascism sprinkled with Khomeinist militancy, anti-Sunni ideology coming from the Assad regime, uh, clerics that were bought and paid tools of the Assad regime that worked also with the Khomeinists that were anti-Israel, anti-Western, anti-Semitic. There's reasons there's not a single Jew left in Syria, and the Christians remaining, if they're not Baptist loyalists, are also not free. So these short-term alliances I don't think mean much. Long-term, yeah, to fight those and begin to work with a third pathway is going to need reform, is going to need for the patient to get sicker before he or she gets better. And those countries, as long as they don't have nuclear weapons, I think we prevent foreign intervention and let them go through revolutions 1.0, 3.0, 8.0, 15.0 until both fascisms, corporate fascist, national fascism, and Islamist fascism goes away. Iran went through a period of monarchy and now 30-plus years of Islamist fascism, and once their revolution takes hold, it will be headed towards democracy. So you might say it would have been better to leave the Shah in place, but we would not be doing away with Khomeinism had they not gone through that stage. Now, God willing, they don't get a nuclear weapon, and that is something we can't tolerate allowing them to do so. Well, don't forget, take a look at the axis there. There's some reshuffling of the deck, the chairs on the decks there in the Middle East, and it's much more than simply about the Khashoggi affair. There's a lot more going on there, and we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention. As always, God bless. Please share this. Subscribe. I'll see you online. I'll see you on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-S-S-E-R. I'll see you at Reform This Radio on Twitter. I'll see you on Facebook at MZ Jasser and at blazeradio.com. This is Zudi Jasser. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.